Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. What I've entitled today's message is Qualified in Grace. And just to give you a little history, I was raised in church my entire life. But in April 1977, watching Jesus of Nazareth the first year it was out, it was at Easter time, I embraced Jesus watching that show. When I saw the centurion at the foot of the cross, and it was just, Jesus, you gave your life for me. I give my life in return. I was an Episcopalian. That's all I knew how to say. My life was transformed at that instant. Forever changed. And when I'll add on top of that, which I didn't realize, at that time I experienced the roller coaster Christianity like many Christians do. I thought I had got all figured out. Anyone else here ever run across that? Instead, I was able to stuff God in a my-size box that met my beliefs, my expectations that God had to measure up to. That's kind of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, but we won't go there. God became what I believed him to be. You know, in Genesis it says, God created man in his image and his likeness. There's another creation that's not actually talked about in that Genesis account. But it would go something like this. And then man created God in his image. You know what everything we do is all about? It's about one thing. This is what true religion is about. You are God's image. Who's God's image? You. Who's God's image? Every human being that has ever lived and ever existed. We all possess God's breath. The only reason we live is because his breath is in us. Genesis 9, 6, God said this to Noah. He said, don't kill another man because man is made in my image and my likeness. Wasn't that after Adam sinned? Wasn't that in the time that most Christians believe that we ceased being God's image? But God declares an important truth. You have always been my image, my likeness. That doesn't mean you behave like me. That doesn't mean that you think like me. But everything I am is in you. And that's the good news of life, of love, that we are to take to every individual we see. It's not about getting people to accept Jesus. It's about getting people to realize that Jesus loves them and has already accepted them from the very foundation of the world. And the sad truth is, many people live without that knowledge, both in the church and outside of that church, separating themselves from his love. But the good news is, he never separates us from his love. He always loves us. So the experience that I went through of squeezing God in that box, it was like living a real-life Pac-Man. You know, you got all that stuff coming after you, trying to crunch you down, and you're trying to get away, and then, bam, you hit the wall in the maze, and there's no place to go. And you get overwhelmed by what's chasing you. 
And then what do you do? You hit the reset and you automatically experience that all over again. That's what my faith was like. That's what my religious experience was like. It was like I was always hitting reset because I thought I had this figured out, that figured out, and it just, I hit a wall. It didn't work. There was a hole. I understood that there were incongruencies in my existence and my belief pattern. Now, in 2012, I experienced a grace awakening. I was raised in church all my life, went to Bible college, but to me, grace was just a cliche that Paul started epistles out with. Grace is so much more than that. When I embraced grace, I got off that crazy roller coaster ride. I began to let God out of the box and began the journey of discovering God, who is much greater than my box limited him in being. Grace empowered me to stop hitting the walls, causing me to question and attempt to patch up my faith repeatedly. And yes, I still encountered things that challenged what I believed, but instead of keeping me in the box, I grew and experienced and embraced a God greater than I could ever imagine. That's what your journey and my journey is about, discovering how great God is, how amazing God is, that he's not like other people say he is. There's a lot of people that speak distruth about God, that God hates you, but he loves you. Last thing I remember Jesus saying, or one of the last things is, for God so loved the world that he gave me. Grace has been a positive, life-changing experience. And if any of you have been on the grace journey for a while, you've probably experienced those who have embarked on it and have shipwrecked their faith. So that's led people to say, oh, you got to be careful of that grace message because it'll shipwreck your faith, cause you to go into all this uh, sin and everything. Anyone hear that? Let me ask you a question. How many evangelicals or fundamentalists do you know that have left their faith and followed a life of sin? It's not unique to grace. And grace never has given anyone a license to sin. What gives you a lot of sin is law. That's what empowers you to sin. The more we embrace law, the more we embrace a desire to sin and are consumed by it. Grace frees us from that. It's that get out of jail free card. Now, when I look at those who have shipwrecked their faith for various reasons, which I won't get into today, I find comfort in this. Even though they've abandoned God, God has never abandoned them and never will. That's comforting. Whatever any of us could do, God's promise is, I will never leave you or forsake you. There were no ifs, ands, or buts after that. So remember that when you hit the depths of despair. We all hit those from time to time. And how could I have done this? But God's greater. And I realize eventually, they'll come to a realization and they will get back on the right track. 
Because he who began a good work in you will what? Carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. That's our assurance. Early in my grace journey, Diane and I found a book that unfortunately is no longer in print by Chad Mansbridge. Moe's familiar with that book. <laughs> Told me he just finished reading it today. But the book is He Qualifies You. And Diane and I credit the truths in that book for helping keeping us on the straight and narrow in that grace walk journey that we embarked on and growing together in him. Today and in three weeks from now when I share again, I'm going to be sharing a few of the simple truths, but important truths, anchoring us in our faith and our grace walk. So in saying this, Father, I thank you that you're here with us. I thank you for your blessing upon each and every one of us. I speak your life. I speak your grace. I speak your truth. I speak your peace. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for opening our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive. Give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible is an amazing book, an anthology spanning over two millennia, capturing men's experience and understanding of God and themselves. Of all the characters that we find in the Old Testament scriptures, there's two men that stand out, Abraham and Moses. We look at them as the greatest figures of our faith, second only to Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Abraham and Moses represent the two great pre-Calvary covenants offered by God to mankind. These two covenants, together with the covenant ratified by Jesus himself, are discussed greatly in the New Testament. The early church experienced great confusion between Jesus' covenant of grace, the new covenant, and the law-keeping covenant of Moses, the old covenant, as well as a covenant promise to Abraham. If we look at church history, when was the doctrine of the Trinity finally finalized in the church? It took three centuries. They had no question that Jesus was a, was a logos, God, logos, that became flesh. But what they didn't understand is, what does that mean? How is Jesus in the flesh the same or different than the divine logos, Yahweh himself? Centuries. Men questioned that argued that, and it still goes on today. Those were men who walked with Jesus, and they still didn't have all the dots connected on those things. But you know, if we look at John, he had the dots connected on one thing which is the most important. John is known as an apostle of love. And you know, if we can do one thing in life, we've achieved God's heart. And that is if we love well. It's not about hating. Hating is totally contrary to love. It's about loving. Who are we to love? The world like God. What about those who believe differently than us? Oh, we're to write nasty things on Facebook, right? No, Jesus said, love him. What if they have a different sexual orientation than we may approve of? What does Jesus say? Love him. What if they're a murderer? Aren't they included in the world that God loves? 
You know, there's not a lot of difference today in Christianity than Phariseeism 2,000 years ago. And we see two reformations taking place in our midst. One is a reformation where the church is embracing Phariseeism. And the other is a reformation where the church is embracing love. Which Christian are you? Won't ask for any uh, public displays of that, but that's a good question. Now, the church experienced great confusion, like I said. And that confusion is clearly seen in many New Testament books. That's what Galatians is all focused about. The church is reverting back to the law. Why? Because men came from the council of apostles in Jerusalem that said, these guys, the circumcision group, have the true message. And what did Paul do? He publicly got in Peter's face in front of everyone. He said, you. He rebuked him. You used to eat with Gentiles and men you considered sinners. And now what do you do? You separate them thinking that that separation makes you holy. Jesus had no trouble fellowshipping with sinners and loving on sinners. Why do we? Well, because Bruce might see me and spread rumors about me, right? No, Bruce wouldn't do that, but yeah. Confusion existed then, and the same confusion negatively impacts the church today. Scripture contains many covenants. Many of us, including myself, believed we are under and expected to meet the terms of every scriptural covenant. In essence, combining them into one great covenant. It's important to realize each, co each of the covenants was made with specific individuals or people groups. And many of them came to fulfillment. What we have a tendency to do and this is what I was taught in Bible college is joining all these multiple covenants together into one single super covenant. But do we really believe that we can outdo what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection? We can't. That was a dilemma the early church faced. And that's a dilemma the, still, the church still faces today. The purpose of this and my next message is to look at Scripture's three major covenants. We'll look at one of them today and identify specifically what in each covenant qualifies people to access God's promised blessings and the promise of his presence and provisions. The three primary covenants mentioned in Scripture, first are the Abrahamic covenant, which is based on pedigree. God's promises becomes one's right and inheritance because of their pedigree, that I am a descendant of Abraham. Secondly, there's the Mosaic Covenant, which is based on performance. The Abrahamic Covenant had nothing to do with performance. If you were in Abraham, you were blessed regardless. The Mosaic Law said, well, yeah, being part of Abraham is important, but you have to perform right as well. And then there's a new covenant, which is based on position. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which God's promised blessings are one's rights and inheritance, purely based on their position in him. 
Being in Christ, you qualify for all of God's precious promises and powerful promises, regardless of your family pedigree or fluctuating performance. All, of all of the heroes in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, Abraham is given the most uh, time and attention. The writer of Hebrews in 6, 12 through 15 says this, according to the message. Be like those who stay the course with committed faith and then get everything promised to them. And then he goes on and says, when God made his promise to Abraham, he backed it to the hilt. Putting his own reputation on the line, he said, I promise that I'll bless you with everything I have. Bless and bless and bless. Abraham stuck it out and got everything that had been promised to him. What did Abraham have to do? He just had to believe God. He didn't have to do nothing. It wasn't based on his performance. Do you know how similar that is to the new covenant that we're under, under Jesus? We're not blessed because of what we do. We are blessed for one reason, what he has done. There is nothing you or I or anyone can do to save themselves or anyone else. Jesus has done it all. His last words on the cross, it is finished. We're going to talk about that next time. Isaiah encourages us to look at Abraham. Isaiah 51, 2. Look at, to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Abraham is considered by both old and new covenant believers as a father of our faith. So it would seem to be of great value to have an accurate understanding of his faith and his personal walk with God. Abraham had many wonderful, amazing encounters with God, but his ultimate encounter is found in the Abrahamic blessing. And I'm going to be reading from Genesis 12, 2 through 3, and 17, 6 through 7 in respect to this. God said this to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And of all the peoples on earth, you uh, will be blessed through you. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant, covenant between me and you, and between your descendants after you, for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That's the Abrahamic blessing. And that sounds pretty amazing. Now let me ask you this. Who's the one responsible for making this happen? Is it Abraham or God? We've been taught in faith is you're responsible. Under Abraham, it wasn't his responsibility. Nine times God says, I will. How many times does God say to Abraham, you must? Nada, zero. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. The Abrahamic covenant isn't based on human performance, but rather God's grace, his unearned favor, his divine empowerment. Under the Abrahamic covenant, God's favor was not guaranteed. 
uh, to those who behaved right, but to those who were born right. Their pedigree was in Abraham. Or to those who joined themselves as belonging to the family line of Abraham. The first argument that people will bring up, what about circumcision? We always try to get the law in there. And that's a good question because it does talk about circumcision, and I wondered about that. Now, many attempt to make circumcision a requirement for receiving Abraham's blessing. But here's a problem. Circumcision was given 20 years after the Abrahamic blessing. So if it's required, Abraham went 20 years without being blessed. I mean, though that's not true. Circumcision isn't a condition for God's covenantal blessing. Rather, when we read it, it's a sign, a reminder of what Abraham was freely given and already walking in. Circumcision wasn't given for God's benefit to know if you were in or you were out. It was given to Abraham and his descendants' benefits as a continual reminder of who they were and what was freely given them. That it was based on their pedigree, their birthright, being in Abraham alone. We see such reminders throughout Scripture. Look at Cain and his mark upon him. Kept him from being killed by whoever found him. How about Noah's rainbow? Every time we see a rainbow in the sky, it's God's covenantal promise that never will I curse the earth with a flood that will destroy all flesh. Moses' Passover meal. A reminder. Circumcision served as a personal daily reminder of God's eternal covenant, with, uh, which was based on their pedigree alone. Now, the proof of this Abrahamic blessing is seen in God's never once cursing, rebuking, punishing, or judging Abraham or his descendants, despite their ungodly behavior. I'm going to take a quick run through these, but they are listed so you can jot them down if you're interested. When we explore scripture, it's readily seen God's blessing and promises to Abraham were not based on Abraham's performance, but on his pedigree alone. Abraham, on two separate occasions, lost sight of his trust and blessing in God, evidenced in his blatant lying about Sarah. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Why? Because he was afraid the other men would see how beautiful she was and kill Abraham so they could take her. He wasn't trusting in God very much. Where was his faith? And isn't he the father of our faith? Maybe our faith is embraced on what Abraham believed and trusted, per se. But what Abraham believed and trusted. Abraham's faith was God's faith. You know, repeatedly in the New Testament, it's not translated accurately. Because in this case, for some reason, they don't, the translators decided not to translate the genitive as of, declaring possession. But one verse that you're going to be very familiar with, Mark, have faith in God, right? We've all heard that. 
But in the Greek it says, have God's faith or have the faith belonging to God. Abraham's faith wasn't his welling something up. It was his trusting in the creator's faith. And that's what true faith is about. You know, I can have hope for a Cadillac, but it's not until God says, that Cadillac is yours. Now, Diane and I, we just went through this year-long ordeal of purchasing a house, and we get to possess our house tomorrow. We're so excited. After this long wait, we rejoice and celebrate. But, you know, in that time, we had the title deed. About a month ago, it was signed over to us, but we had 30 days till occupancy. And tomorrow we get occupancy. And Abraham's faith was, he had the title deed, what God says is mine. But he realized in hope, one day I will lay hold of that. Genesis 12, 11 through 13, we see Abraham entering Egypt. He's fleeing the promised land, goes into Egypt, and he tells Sarah, Please say you're my sister in verse 13. So it may be well for me, uh, for your sake, that I may live because of you. And in verse 17, what does it say? Abraham did that. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, wait a minute. Who lied? Abraham. And who did God punish? Pharaoh. Have you ever wondered about that? It's because what God blesses, he cannot and no one can curse. God doesn't say, oh, I bless you today, but tomorrow I'm going to curse you. Come on. God's not like that. But I was taught God is like that. I thank God that I've been freed from that. Genesis 20, 1 through 3. Abraham again journeyed to another land. And Abram said to his wife, she's my sister, or son of his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, the king, sent and took Sarah. But God came to him in the night by a dream and said, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Wait a minute. He didn't know that. Abraham lied again. And who does God come after? Wow. I think God's got a problem. No, I don't think God has a problem. I think we have a problem in understanding God. Now, look at Genesis 27. God tells Abimelech, he says, Abraham is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you don't restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Never once did God have a bad word toward Abraham. What happens if you or someone else sins? Oh, God's going to smite him. That wasn't good theology under Abraham, and it ain't good theology under Jesus. Now, I do want to add here that Scripture is not advocating lying. And I am not saying that it's okay to lie. So don't say Tom said. What I am saying is it, your behavior is not more powerful than God's blessing. And that's what's displayed here.
God's blessing trumps anything we can do. Now let's look at Jacob. What does the name Jacob mean? Deceiver. He lived out that name quite well. He attempted to deceive his way into getting Isaac's blessing. And what did God do? The blessing was Esau's right. Isaac or Jacob lied and deceived his way into getting what was not his. And what did God do? Did he rebuke Jacob? Did he punish Jacob? He let him have it. He didn't deserve it. (laughs) In his eyes. And then Jacob and Rebekah, they end up lying, deceiving, plundering, taking his his father-in-law Laban's idols, And God never rebukes him for any of his actions. But God did rebuke Laban. God related with Jacob on the basis of his Abrahamic pedigree rather than his behavior. Then we've got Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who, retaliating over their sister's rape, deceived an entire city into becoming circumcised. They didn't feel like getting up and fighting for a few days. So they took that as a ruse to go and slaughter the entire city, murder them, and take their women and as their own and plunder them. Not very godly behavior in my eyes. Some people may disagree with me, but God doesn't rebuke them. God doesn't punish them. Now again, scripture isn't advocating this type of immoral behavior. But again, it's advocating that one's behavior is not more powerful than God's blessing. Okay, if that's not enough, let's take another look. Reuben has illegitimate sex with one of his stepmothers. Genesis 35, 22. God never rebukes him. Judah hires a shrine prostitute and later discovers it was his daughter after she become, his daughter-in-law after she becomes pregnant. God doesn't rebuke him. Joseph's brothers plot to murder him, sell him into slavery, and lie to their father about it. Where do you find God's rebuke to them? It is silent. There is no rebuke. Why? Because they are under the Abrahamic blessing. It's not that God winks at such behavior or approves of such behavior, but his blessing is stronger than any curse. Despite all this, God never rebukes, corrects, or judges any of them for any of this behavior. He continues to be faithful to his covenant to Abraham by blessing those who identify as his sons and heirs purely because of their pedigree. Then we look from Abraham to Sinai, a passing generation. Genesis closes with the death of Jacob's sons and an entire generation dies with Israel eventually finding themselves in bitter slavery in Egypt. And God hears their cries 
God's concerned with their hardship. Why? Because of his promise to their father Abraham. And Yahweh comes and rescues his people who leave their oppressors healthy, wealthy, and whole. This is in Exodus chapter 2, 3, uh, and uh, 12. Kind of talks about that. Now, as Israel journeys from Egypt toward Canaan, one begins to see the great contrast begin the Abra- between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant whereby the promise of God's blessing is guaranteed simply because of your pedigree. I'm the seed of Abraham. I'm part of his descendants, his lineage. The Mosaic covenant is based on pedigree plus performance. It's not only your birthright, but you have to do, you have to pay to get your birthright. How many churches that are, do we know that are like that? I used to be part of a church. That used to be my faith that, yeah, Jesus saved you because of grace, but you got to do because if you don't do, if you don't pay, you don't get that grace. If you have to do or pay, it ain't a free gift, people. It's works. It's law. And we're saved by grace, not through works, lest any man may boast. Our boasting is where? Not in us. It's in Jesus, in his finished work. It is finished. He did it all. There is nothing you or I can add to it. Everything you need for life and godliness dwells within you. The problem is we just don't fully realize it. And when we realize the power that is within us, oh, it's amazing what can happen. I have seen blind eyes open. I have seen the lame get up and walk. I have seen rheumatoid knees that were this big go down to normal size instantaneously. God is a God of miracles still today. But that's another message. When we look at Exodus 12 in Egypt... The plague of the firstborn passes through Egypt as a great and final sign of Yahweh's judgment on the Egyptian gods and Israel's enemies. On the night of judgment, as judgment passes over Israel, Israel distinguished themselves, how? By putting blood, lamb's blood, on the doorpost of their house. Now, do you really think God needed to see that blood to protect him? I think God knew who his were without looking for blood on a doorpost. I think God's that smart. You know who the blood was for? It wasn't for God to know who to pick and who not to pick. It was for them as a sign that I am Abraham's seed. I am under his blessing. I am a child of God. I am safe and secure and protected in him. God had no need to be reminded of their pedigree. He knew who was his. He knows who is his. They're the ones that needed it. God's judgment, we see, passes over Abraham's descendants purely because of their pedigree. God rescued them, not because of anything that they did, but simply because of his blessing to Abraham. You and your descendants are blessed. And what I have blessed, no man or no thing can curse. 
I want to tell you, church, those who are listening today, you are blessed. And what God has blessed, no one or nothing can curse. We look at the Passover meal and the shedding of the lamb's blood. Some of the teachings out there, a lot of the teachings out there, say it has to do with God forgiving us of our sin and God's forgiving the rebellion of the Israelites that landed them in slavery because God was displeased with them. That runs contrary to what I've been talking about. That runs contrary to what we see in Scripture. The Passover was not to atone for Israel's sin or immorality. There's no mention of those in that verse. The blood was a sign of their deliverance from death. The death which the first Adam embraced for all humanity in Eden. And in this, it was a sign of the last Adam in his death and shedding of blood on the cross of freeing all humanity from death. Jesus entered our death so we could enter his life. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what the gospel's all about. Again, the sign wasn't to remind God, but to remind them of who they were, that they were in Abraham. And that was their authentic identity, regardless of how they behaved. God wasn't counting Israel's sin against them. Their pedigree, Abraham's blessing, only allowed blessing. The Mosaic law, which imputed sin, that didn't come for another several centuries. There wasn't any law to declare them guilty of sin. And according to Paul in Romans 5.13, as far as God's concerned, sin is not taken into account where there is no law. You know the good news? I'm going to jump ahead for one brief second. Jesus removed us from the curse of the law. We're not under law. Anyone here of Jewish uh, ancestry? I don't see any hands going up. I'll put mine down. You know, Gentiles were never under the law. Only Jews were. You know what the church has done? Just like the church did 2,000 years ago. I'm a Gentile, so I need to become a Jew When we review Israel's journey from Egypt to Sinai, we see God reveals his commitment to Abraham's covenant and blessing. Exodus 14, Israel complains regarding their horrible situation trapped at the banks of the Red Sea. Israel's complaining against Moses and against God. What does God do? He remains faithful and delivers them by parting the Red Sea for him. He never rebukes them. Exodus 15, Israel is in the desert and the water is bitter and they complain. God doesn't judge them or punish them, but he makes the water sweet for them. Exodus 16, Israel complains to Moses about not having enough food. And what does God do? He provides food for them, manna. He meets their needs. Then God provides a test with the manna. Take just enough for each day. And if you took too much, what happened? It became wormy. And then he said, for the seventh day on the sixth day, you take extra for the seventh because it's a Sabbath. 
And they didn't. And they went hungry, a lot of them. Now, Israel disobeys God and Moses with that. And Moses gets Israel angry with Israel. But God never gets angry with Israel. He never rebukes them. Look at the story. It's not there. Exodus 17 at Rephidim, there's no water to drink. And again, Israel complains, quarrels, and grumbles against Moses, threatening to stone him. What does God do? He provides water from the rock, meeting their needs. Nowhere does he rebuke them or punish them. God was not relating to Israel on the basis of their behavior, but on the basis of their pedigree. Up to this point, God's blessings were not conditional upon performance but upon simply one being in Abraham. But with the coming of Mosaic law, that was about to radically change. I encourage you, go back, look at these scriptures. All the way from Abraham up until the giving of the law, nowhere does God curse one who belongs to him. Nowhere does God rebuke or punish those who belong to him. If God is for me, who can be against me? I want to tell you this day, beyond a shadow of doubt, in Jesus, God is for you. He is toward you, and he always has been. Now, today we talked about the power of one's pedigree, the power of the Abrahamic covenant blessing over every and any sin. Next time I talk, uh, over Labor Day weekend, Three weeks from now, I'm going to talk about the Mosaic Covenant, which added the requirement of one's performance to receive the blessing. And I will talk about the New Covenant, which is amazing. Until then, I encourage you to consider two things. One, ponder upon the greatness of the Abrahamic blessing, how amazing it is. And the second, a question, why would God... Give something freely by grace that is such a huge blessing just to take it away and force you to obtain that which has freely been given to you based on one thing alone, your performance. That doesn't make much sense. I won't be digging into that next time. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your blessing and upon us. Thank you for opening our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive. And as we go on this busy week, I thank you for always being with us and growing us in you and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.